Hi, I'm Elise Lunen, Chief Content Officer here at Goop and co-host with Gwyneth of the Goop Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Keds. If you've ever struggled with burnout or felt like you were on the edge of burning out, I think you're going to like hearing from today's guest. But before we get into it, let's talk a little bit about the first pair of kicks ever created for women. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. My ideal event attire involves a pair of sneakers, so I really appreciated the wall of Ked's shoes at our last wellness summit in Goop Health. As guests walked in the door, they got hooked up with a pair of classic white Keds. It was cool to be able to partner with a brand that has been designing for women for so long. Keds made the first woman's sneaker in 1916, and today they pride themselves on being a brand that makes sneakers for women by women. The company is a whopping 88% female, and their leadership team is all women. To learn more about Keds, check out keds.com slash our story. That's keds.com slash our story. And if you're shopping on the Keds site, use code GOOP20 for 20% off full-priced items. That's GOOP20. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Today, I'm sharing another conversation that I had at our InGoop Health Summit in New York City this March. This one is with award-winning author Emily Nagoski. Emily began her work as a sex educator, and she went on to earn an MS in counseling and a PhD in health behavior. You likely know her book, Come As You Are, the surprising new science that will transform your sex life. And if you don't, you should. Emily co-wrote her new book with her twin sister, Amelia. It's about women's overall well-being, and it's called Burnout. It's pretty remarkable. 
Emily and I talked about the importance of completing the stress response cycle, why burnout is at an all-time high, and how our relationship to stress is more important than the stress itself. Wholeness is recognizing that you are trying to gain access to your own personal sense of self in the context of an environment that is trying to tell you you are wrong. The most difficult thing about this whole thing is being able to hear your own internal wisdom that lives inside your body. All right, without further ado, let's get to today's chat. Emily co-wrote her second book with her twin sister, Amelia. It's about women's overall well-being, and it's called Burnout. And it was actually inspired by your sister, right? So how right. did you guys... I know she does... She's a conductor. Oral conductor. Yeah, yes, she's an oral conductor. This is what she does for a living. Like, yes. She's a... She flails for a living. <laughs> yeah, so I wrote Come As You Are, which is a book about the science of women's sexual well-being. And then, so it was in 2015, I went on tour, I was talking to all these women about the science of women's sexual well-being, and over and over, women were coming up to me afterward and saying, yeah, all that sex science is great, Emily, but the part that really transformed me was that chapter about feelings and stress, oh my God. Mm. And I was like, but the sex science, and they were like, yeah, that was great, but feelings. And so I told my sister this, and she was like, duh. As a choral conductor, she has to teach people how to feel their feelings all the time so that they can communicate the emotional and musical intention of the composer of the piece they're singing. And she learned on the podium how to experience her feelings, but did not learn how to do that in her actual life, know how to feel her feelings. We grew up, we were just talking about this backstage, we grew up listening to our musician mother singing a song called Don't Cry Out Loud. Mm. Literally, just keep it inside, learn how to hide your feelings. That was our family anthem. And it almost killed my sister. She was hospitalized twice with stress-induced exhaustion, inflammation. Eventually, she had her appendix taken out. So Amelia was like, nobody ever teaches us how to feel our feelings. And once I finally learned that, she said, it probably saved my life. Twice, she said. And I was like, okay, so... We need to write a book about that. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we wrote a book about. It's called Burnout. It's for women who feel overwhelmed and exhausted by everything they have to do and yet are still worried that they're not doing enough. I know. <laughs> well, we're going to talk, like, that's a whole conversation, which we're going to get to. But let's start sort of at the beginning of the book, really, which is where you explain that women are taught, we're taught to manage our stress, whatever that means, and not the actual stressors. So... Is that right? Is that wrong? Is it complicated? Yeah, the key thing is to differentiate. There are the things that are your stressors, right? Those are the factors in your life that activate a stress response inside your body. I'm like, I want to talk to all of you, but I also want to talk to you. You can talk to them. You talk to them. Talk I'll to stare everybody. lovingly at you. Okay. And I will periodically look lovingly at you. Okay. So there's your stress. There's the stuff that activates the stress response in your bodies. Your stressors are your life, you know, your kids, your partner, your job, the political world, the climate change, the patriarchy, right? Like, you name it. Those are the phenomena out in the world that activate a stress response inside your body. There are some internal stressors, too, right? Like body self-criticism, 
is a really big one. Internalized sexism is a really big one. Those are trauma is generated on the inside once it's trapped in your body. But then there's the stress, which is the physiological phenomenon that happens inside your body. And the deal is dealing with your stressors is a separate process from dealing with the stress in your body. Like, say, traffic is your stressor. You may have had this experience. You're like in traffic, and people are being jerks and idiots, and you finally like get where you're going, and you get out of your car. And do you suddenly now be like, "Oh, everything is fine. It's great." No, you're still walking around with this tension inside your body. You get out of traffic and have therefore dealt with the stressor, but you still haven't dealt with the stress. Which is why you still feel like this. And the thing we get wrong about how to deal with stress is that it's a cycle. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end, just like digestion. Like we all know, there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. And if you don't get to the end part with digestion, does that, does that, how does that feel inside your body? <laughs> Not so good. So the thing to remember about dealing with your stress is you have to complete the cycle, and there are. A dozen evidence-based ways to do that. The number one, of course, is physical activity of any kind. Yes, it can be Pilates. Yes, it can be just going for a run. It can be literally just like sitting with every muscle in your body tensed up, really, 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 really hard for a slow count of ten, and then you let it go. Sometimes that's all it takes to like tell your body you have survived this threat. And returned to a safe place, so your body is now a safe place to be. I would say, after physical activity, the second most efficient evidence-based strategy for dealing with the stress itself is actually affection, because connection with people we care about and trust is another physiological cue that tells your body, "I have returned to a safe place." That safe place is this other person who is my emotional home. In the research, they suggest a 20-second hug. This is one of people's favorite little tidbits from chapter one of the book. A 20-second hug is a potentially awkward length of time to hug somebody if you don't really like them and trust them. But that's kind of the point. If you have someone in your life that where you can stand over your own center of gravity, wrap your arms around their body while they wrap your, their arms around your body, and hold each other. For 20 seconds in a row, that, that tells so nice. your body yeah. that you're safe now, and that's what the stress response is about. You're not safe right now. You need cues that signal to your body that you are safe. The one thing I can tell you absolutely does not work is quote telling yourself you are safe. There is no affirmation. Your body is in this state. Is in this stressed out. Tense kind of state, and you're like, you're safe, you're safe, you're safe, and your body's like, prove it. <laughs> and physical activity and affection are two extraordinarily powerful and efficient ways for your body to learn. Oh, you're right. I am now safe. My body's a safe place to be, and you can access it even when your body is not in a safe place. Sometimes you're in an environment that's sort of inherently toxic and unsafe for you as a person living in your kind of body or living in your kind of identity. You can return to a place of safety inside your body even when your body is not in a safe place. How soon? It's funny when you mentioned like that feeling of being in traffic and being. I was just the other week. Running for a flight, and I made it. And then I think because I had a physical experience. I mean, I of course spent the first flight trying to make my connection, like so anxious. 
but then I feel better. Does it have to be that immediate? No, no. Almost all of us are walking around with, you know, like decades of accumulated <laughs> incomplete stress response cycles, and that's okay. You're, it will just sit there, like the stress response gets activated by whatever stress you experience. It will stay there and wait for you. So the stress you experienced in the seventh grade before you took the PSAT that you didn't know how to deal with because your family didn't teach you how to deal with that stress, it's sitting there waiting for you. <laughs> how do you access that? Yeah, physical activity. One of the best things about this is that you don't have to have conscious awareness. You don't need a story about it. You don't need to know where the stress came from. Physiologically, it doesn't matter what causes the stress. It's all largely the same. And so this, even though our stressors require lots of different strategies, the strategy you use to deal with your jerky boss are not identical to the strategies you use to deal with your jerky children which are not the same as the strategies you use to deal with traffic, right? But the strategies you use to deal with the stress activated by all those things is more or less the same. Physical activity. And if you've got a lot accumulated all up in your john, uh, sorry. I'm from uh, northern Delaware, and john is a word that means stuff. It's a Philadelphia. Anyway, I just suddenly realized people would be like, what does she mean by john? So it doesn't, you've got all this stuff, it's been years worth of accumulating this stuff. The first time you try it, like you're gonna go for a run and you'll feel a little better, but like you still got a lot left to like get to the bottom of. I've been doing this for a while now and I still don't always touch bottom. There is a way to expedite it though, to make it faster. Yeah. And my sister taught me this one. It's actually evidence-based, there's research on it. When she was in grad school, she would get on like the elliptical machine because Exercise, good for you. That's the, I, those were very popular. Yeah, totally. At the time, elliptical machine, she was going, but she would visualize herself as Godzilla stomping on the land-grant university full of misogynists who were trying to prevent her from getting her degree. And when she got to the end of her workout, she didn't just feel like, whew, I did it. She was like, I conquered the world. She is the only woman to finish a doctorate in that program ever in the history of that program, which will tell you something about how toxic a situation it was, but that sort of visualization got her through. Was that after her hospitalization? Yeah. Okay. I guess she had to learn the tools first. Right. Um, I also like that a sex, sex, just want to go there. Six, second, kiss. Yes is equally That's another, awkward. This is a John Gottman thing, right? It's not six one-second kisses. You can imagine six one-second kisses. This is one six-second kiss. Potentially an awkward amount of time to kiss someone if you don't really like them a lot and trust them. But... That's the point, is it teaches your body, look, you have somebody that you love and trust and can be this intimately connected with, to have your face touching their face for six full seconds. It's interesting. Do you know where he traces that back to from an evolutionary perspective? Well, kissing is like a thing that a lot of great apes do, all the chimpanzees do, and gorillas also do it. It probably comes from the way we raise our children. Our mouths are very intricately connected to love because, like, let's start with breastfeeding. Your mouth is how you receive nourishment. The mouths are really densely innervated. Have you seen those things, the uh, somatosensory homunculi? They're these sort of statues of people where all the body parts 
are the size they would be based on the number of nerve endings they have. No. And the hands are like twice the size of the face. And the lips, a somatosensory homunculus looks like Mick Jagger. Like the mouth is so overrepresented in the brain. It is so sensitive. There are so many nerve endings in the mouth. You can learn so much. Why do babies put stuff in their mouths? It's because it's a great way for them to get a lot of information fast about what this object is. Mm, interesting. Thanks for going on that strange segue. <laughs> you bet. So for the stressors, what can you take us through planful problem solving? Oh, yeah. So there's only really two evidence-based coping strategies. One of them is planned problem solving. And fortunately, if you're a woman, you probably got socialized to do planned problem solving. If you walk around with the complete contents of like a drugstore in your bag, that's planned problem solving. If you make sure you have a GPS and a backup GPS, plan problem solving. If you make sure your car has a spare tire in it, plan problem solving. So it does what it says on the packet. You have a problem, you make a plan, and then you execute it, right? That's how you deal with the stressor, the actual phenomenon out in the world. So you have a partner who gets diagnosed with something, it requires a lot of appointments, and so you make calendars, and you put them on the fridge, and you cross things off, and you make lists, right? That's plan problem solving. What do people always leave out of their plan? They accommodate every like situation, they make sure everybody's schedule is included, everybody gets where they need to go, everybody finishes all their stuff, and they leave out themselves dealing with the stress. Oh. <laughs> I mean, so like they're in there, they make sure they get to work, they make sure they can shuttle their kids where they need to go, they make sure they get to their therapy appointment, that's all really important, but that's all dealing with the stressors, dealing with the outside stuff. You have to schedule in, into your plan, time to deal with the stress itself, this physiological state in your body that needs to move from the beginning and middle into the end. And one of the ways you do that is physical activity. You can do it through affection. You can do it through creative self-expression is another evidence-based strategy. Sometimes it's journaling. Sometimes it's storytelling or music. I'm a writer, so for me it comes out as like crying over my keyboard. When a therapist tells you to journal, they are not telling you to, uh, that the construction of sentences is somehow inherently therapeutic. They're giving you a safe place to go with your stress and put it on the piece of paper so that it can have a place to live that's outside your body and isn't doing other people harm. So make sure when you're using your planful problem solving, part of your plan includes dealing with the stress itself. And rest, which I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I just want to say, and then I'm going to let you, you go crazy. The, it, the, one of the most interesting parts of the book or illuminating parts of the book is when you sort of chart out a typical woman's day and all the time. I know we all feel like we're time starved, but the reality is we have time. We do Why? have the time. Yes. So rest. Take it, take it from, I'm just going to throw you that baton. Yeah. So she knows that because I have a whole hour-long talk on just sleep that I do. So here's like the super fast, I just want to motivate you. Does anybody here not already know sleep is good for you? Yes. Are, is it like, oh, sleep. Interesting, Emily. Tell me more about sleep. You should get more of it. A person who has had four or fewer hours of sleep in the previous night is as impaired as a person with a 0.1 blood alcohol level. A person who's been awake for a, that's a person who is legally drunk. 
Uh, a person who's been awake for 19 hours in a row, so say you get up at 7 and you're awake until 3 in the morning, again, as impaired as a person with a 0.1 blood alcohol level. And finally, a person who has had six or fewer hours of sleep every night for the last two weeks. People are like, have I ever gone to work on six or few hours of sleep every night for the last two weeks? Again, as impaired as a person with a 0.1 blood alcohol level for you. And my question is, would you go to work drunk? Would you drive drunk? Would you parent drunk? Would you have a fight with your partner drunk? Sleep is that important. It impairs every system. And everything we try to do to take care of ourselves, physical activity and eating well and social support are all impacted by lack of sleep. So you're not getting the thorough benefit of all of these things you're trying to do for yourself unless you are getting the sleep between seven and nine hours a night. People vary in how much sleep they need. I'm a seven and a half hour person, nine. sometimes seven and three quarters. My sister is a nine hour a night person. If she only gets eight, she really feels it. Like I can see it in her if she missed one of those hours of sleep. Yeah. Sleep is important. It's interesting though, and you make this case in the book that we are so, and I know that this is changing culturally, but that we're so quick to denigrate sleep, yet we would never deny ourselves the breath, you know? Right. We would never deny ourselves food, yeah. although some of us do. But it's interesting how it has earned such a... And I know it's historical. It goes way, yeah, way back. Yeah, there's a long historical... Uh, medieval theologians telling us that sleep is a reminder from God of our inadequacy as uh, spiritual beings. It's a punishment from God. Puritanical ideas that getting only four hours, more than four hours of sleep was uh, sloth. It was an indulgence. And if you need more than four hours of sleep, there's something wrong with you. That's bullshit and wrong. Just by the way, and I cannot count how many people have told me they feel guilty about sleeping. Yeah. I was leading an orientation group for first year students 18-year-old women, and they told me they felt guilty about sleeping. And I was like, okay, so that literally is like feeling guilty about breathing. It's necessary for your survival. How come? And she said, this 18-year-old woman said, when you're sleeping, you're only helping yourself. It's selfish. 18 years old and already a dedicated, we invented this term human giver syndrome because of the cultural expectation that women are supposed to be Tell me if this sounds familiar. There's an expectation that women should be pretty, happy, calm, generous, and attentive to the needs of others. And it's a moral imperative so that if you fail in any of these, you deserve to be punished. You might even go so far as to punish yourself. And for you to sleep is for you to take time that is just for your physical well-being and how dare you. It's selfish of you to get that much sleep. I know there's all these like self-care memes and stuff, like you can't pour from an empty cup and put your own oxygen mask on first. And my favorite one is you don't have to set yourself on fire to keep other people warm. But if you're in an environment where people's expectations are, around, are like human giver syndrome, this expectation that you have to be, the Kate Mann is the author from which we got the language of human giver. She wrote a book called Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny, which I highly recommend. It's very dark, but very short. 
<laughs> and she's the one who posits this world of human beings and human givers, human beings having a moral obligation to be their full humanity, and human givers having a moral obligation to give their full humanity, to be the attentive, loving subordinates of the human beings. Guess which one women are? And the power of human giver syndrome, the intensity of it, is amplified at least tenfold if you add womanhood to some other domain of oppression. So for women of color, it's not just like the water we're swimming in, it is the, it's more like slime, it's, it gets like swampy and sticky and the cost of like your head going underwater is much higher. So human giver syndrome is the reason why we can't prioritize sleep. The researchers, man, oh man, you may have heard of the second shift, right? Your first shift is you're at work, your second shift is you're at home. The researchers use the language of the third shift. Even at night, women are expected in a heterosexual family, the woman is still expected to be the one who interrupts her sleep in the middle of the night to care for children, even when they're past breastfeeding, the expectation is still that the woman is the one who's going to sacrifice her sleep, sacrifice her well-being on the altar of someone else's comfort and well-being. It's true. I, I mean, I, I can't be alone. And my husband doesn't wake up. Yeah. I don't understand. I, I, yeah. And there and might be kind of a physiological... Like a you're like, wake up. It, there might be a physiological yeah. underpinning where women's sleep really is more interruptible. Maybe there's a biological reason, but until we live in a world where the expectation is the same for men and women, we will never really know if it's just like our bodies have forced us to be more responsive to the world when we're asleep, or if uh, our bodies just naturally are more yeah. responsive. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop List, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. We don't know. We're going to take a quick break. In my past life, working in magazines in New York City, I wore heels all the time. But I somehow shed that habit when I moved to Los Angeles several years ago. And now I'm all about wearing sneakers as many days of the week as possible. Sneakers with jeans, sneakers with dresses, sneakers with skirts. You get the picture. I love a classic white sneaker. And Keds makes arguably one of the most iconic versions at a price point I also appreciate. What I didn't know about their OG women's sneaker, called the Champion, 
is that Keds first launched it in 1916, and at the time, women's sneakers didn't yet exist. Since then, Keds has of course continued to create shoes for women. And behind their shoes, there's more women. Keds is 88% female, and their leadership team is comprised entirely of women. This is pretty similar to our team makeup at Goop. Well, we have one amazing guy on our executive team. He's pretty great and also very comfortable being in his feminine. If you want to learn more about how Keds is championing women, just head to keds.com slash our story. That's keds.com slash our story. And if you're planning to do some shopping while you're on the Keds site, plug in code Goop20 at checkout. That's good for 20% off full-priced items. Again, that's code GOOP20. There are a handful of practitioners that I've met through Goop who have changed my life, and Lauren Roxborough was one of the first. Lauren is a body alignment expert. In practice, this means she helps put people back together or keeps them feeling whole. Years ago, we started calling her the body whisperer at Goop. Maybe this sounds hyperbolic, but as far as nicknames go, this one really fits. A one-on-one session with Lauren is special. Every time I get off her table, having been stretched and rolled by her and manipulated, I leave somehow feeling a few inches taller. She is my favorite person to rebound with, which means jumping on a mini trampoline. And I think it's safe to say my fascia has never been healthier thanks to Lauren's foam rolling routines. Fascia, for those who don't know, is the connective tissue that wraps our muscles. What most impresses me about Lo, though, is the way she's been able to impact many more people than she could ever see in her small private practice. And a lot of this has been through her books. Her latest book, which I love, is called The Power Source, the hidden key to ignite your core, empower your body, release stress, and realign your life. It's a tall order, but the book does not let you down. Lo begins with the pelvic floor, breaking down why it's an integral component of our physical, emotional, and spiritual health. And then she moves through the rest of the body, putting together an easy-to-follow program for overall physical and energetic well-being. This is a book that I know I'll pick up for years to come whenever I need to return to a low routine for letting go of tension, strengthening the body, or finding some inner balance. You can pre-order a copy of The Power Source by Lauren Roxborough today. Just head to your online bookseller of choice. Let's get back to my chat with Emily Nagoski. So how do we get there? How do we, like, how do you eradicate human giver syndrome? How do you cure us all? Yeah, people's, when I ask people that question, I'm like, so fix it. How do we fix human giver syndrome? The first response is, well, make everybody a human being. But if you think about what that world would be like, where everybody feels like they need to uh, maximize their own being, no matter what they have to take from someone else, and they're just entitled to take whatever they want. I was literally in front of a a philosophy major, a group of college students, and he goes, that would be poor, nasty, brutish, and short, following Thomas Hobbes. And when you read Hobbes, you find out that what he's talking about is a world where we dissolve into permanent warfare or totalitarianism. Fun. Not fun. But imagine instead a world where we raise everybody to be a version 
of a human giver, where every single human feels a moral obligation to help when they can, to give what they can in support of other people, no matter what. So nobody feels entitled to take, but everyone feels welcome to give. So if you stay a giver, but you're surrounded by other givers, nobody ever burns out or falls apart because the givers around you are paying attention and they notice, they see it. Hey, you're looking really tired, you go take a nap, then you can have a bath, we'll have dinner ready for you when you're done, and we will take care of you. And then when you're feeling better, you notice when the people around you are worn out. The whole human giver syndrome is only a syndrome and toxic when it is a moral obligation that can merit punishment. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And if all, like if we're surrounded by people, what I have found since writing the book is I'm much more sensitive to what it feels like to give to someone who feels like they're entitled to what I give them versus what it feels like to give to someone who is a fellow giver, who feels honored by what I give them and who I can trust is going to give back to me so that there's this constant balance and exchange and flow of energy instead of just me giving them whatever and them taking it and being like, all right, see you next time you have to give me something. <laughs> The more aware I am of that difference, the more I allocate my resources to these people mm -hmm. and like let that connection be powerful and strong and selectively choose to disallocate my resources from the people who feel like they're entitled to whatever they want from me. How do you sort of start to help people recondition themselves who are incapable of receiving? I certainly have yeah. these friends in my life and it's like a game of racquetball where I'm like, you're amazing. No, 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 you're amazing. It's like, girl, you're amazing. I think we all struggle <laughs> to some extent, but like, how do you teach women to hold attention, to hold affection, to feel like they're worthy? Mm -hmm. Two things. I'm going to ask for Chris's help. Madwoman, wholeness. Those are my two answers. So I'm going to get lost in madwoman, and then I'm going to be like, what was my other thing? And you're going to go, wholeness. Okay, thanks. <laughs> Chris, is, Chris Mariah is here to help me. She is the future of health education. She's spectacular, and she came to help me because it's hard to do this kind of thing on your own. Humans, it turns out, are designed to not to do big things alone. We are designed to do big things together. It requires more than one person to make big projects happen. So first is what, in the book, we call it the mad woman in the attic. So there is this sort of like culturally constructed aspirational, ideal version of you that lives out in the fantasy ether, the sense of all the things you're supposed to be, pretty, happy, calm, generous, attentive to the needs of others, living in a beautiful, clean house, having lots of money and no possessions. Your yes. children always put on your sh their shoes the first time you tell them, right? The fantasy self, right? And then there's who you really are. And there is this gap. Mm, there is this chasm between who you really are and what your external ideal self is. So all of us have in that space, in order to cope with this gap, we have grown a mad woman whose job it is to bridge this unbridgeable chasm. This is the mean stranger in your brain, the mean lady who beats the crap out of you. The reason she's a mad woman is because her job is impossible. It is an unbridgeable chasm. You will never be that thing. And she's just trying to deal with an impossible situation. Sometimes she gets really mad at the world for having these totally unjust, bullshit, unrealistic expectations. 
So she gets mad at the world, right on, and sometimes she gets mad at you and is like, how dare you not do this? You're falling short again. And she beats the crap. Mine, uh, because I was raised by a father who was raised Catholic, I imagine it as like a flail, and I'm just like beating the crap out of myself. Oh, I suck so much. So finding a good relationship with your inner critic, this madwoman in the attic, doesn't, it's not about affirmations, it's not about silencing her, it is the opposite of silencing her. It is the ability, when you feel that happening, when you hear that voice in your head, you turn toward your madwoman with kindness and compassion. She's beating the crap out of you, she's angry, but under that anger is this vulnerability, this sadness, this fear for you. She's trying to help you the best way she can, the way she's helping you is getting in your way, but ignoring her, like if somebody ignores you when you're mad and trying to help them, how does that feel? You're pounding on the door saying, you gotta let me help you, you gotta let me help you, and they're like, no, I'm not gonna talk to you. That does not de-escalate the situation. What de-escalates it is if you turn toward this angry voice in her to say, tell me what you fear, tell me what your vulnerability is here in this moment, don't forget that she is a madwoman. She has to be a madwoman because her job is impossible. But turn toward her with kindness and compassion and thank her for the ways that she is trying to help you deal with the gap between who you are and who the world is telling you to be. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. the, my most recent example... <laughs> okay, so this event was happening on Saturday. It was in my calendar for Sunday. I get a text at 10 a.m. on Saturday. Hey, Emily, are you upstairs? We're about to start. I'm half an hour away, my car's under a foot of snow, and I'm still in my pajamas. I am not going to make it to this event. So I like deal with the actual, I deal with the situation, I deal with the stressor itself, and then my mad woman comes along with the flail and the whip and the balls of fire that she's gonna throw at me and like beats the crap out of me for failing in this way. And so I took my own damn advice. I turned toward this scary, my mad woman looks a lot like Tikka from Moana, the lava monster. <laughs> Ever defeated a lava monster? Have you? And what does Moana do? She does not run away. She doesn't fight the lava monster. She returns the heart. And when you, ret when you turn with kindness and compassion, sorry feelings, <laughs> whoa! When instead of ignoring or battling this part of yourself, you turn toward it with kindness and compassion, what happens to Teka? She turns into Tefiti, the goddess of life, right? Which is who she was all along. So when I listened to my mad woman yelling at me, what it turned into was, I'm so tired, Emily, of fighting so hard to make sure nobody understands that you're imperfect. <laughs> that nobody's going to like stop loving you and exclude you from everything forever because you made one mistake. And I'm so afraid that if they find out you are imperfect, you will never work again, you will never be loved again, and like, that's beautiful. Like, I want to have a loving relationship with someone who cares so much about me and wants so much for me to be safe and happy and loved and successful. So the mad woman is one of the ways that we begin to undo the damage done to us. And the second, 
was wholeness. Chris and I were talking about this before. This language, I want to give Chris full credit for it because it's the first time I've heard a way to talk about it. Usually we talk about wellness, right? But wellness has taken on this meaning of like your own individual stuff, like making sure your body is functioning, making sure you are, feel as well as you can given your context. Wholeness, Chris says, is when you take into account the context in which you are attempting to access a sense of well-being. You recognize, oh wait, this is a misogynist culture. My boss is not going to give me that raise because he's a sexist and believes I shouldn't. And my culture says, well, women don't get raises because they don't ask. Well, okay, you did ask, but you asked the wrong way. You know what? Your boss was never going to give you that raise because he's sexist. That's not me. Wholeness is recognizing that you are trying to gain access to your own personal sense of self in the context of an environment that is trying to tell you you are wrong. The most difficult thing about this whole thing is being able to hear your own internal wisdom that lives inside your body, even in the context where the whole world is just shouting at you with opinions about what your body is supposed to look like, what you're supposed to be doing, what benchmarks of achievement you're supposed to be accessing. All these voices trying to drown out your own inner sense of, no, this is what's true for me. The reason mindfulness Physical activity, affection are so good for you is because they quiet all that external noise, all that bullshit, the patriarchy, ugh, the bikini <laughs> industrial complex. It quiets all that noise and gives you greater access to listen to the voice inside you. And the call isn't out there at all, it's inside me. Keep going. I like Moana a lot. <laughs> I've, I think I've probably watched it more than you. Yeah? I don't know. Well, my littlest loves, oh. he loves Maui, but yeah, it's okay. Maui's the trickster. Maui yeah. is, the, is the flawed sidekick. And the funny thing is that Amelia and I watching Moana, we're like, oh, Amelia's Moana and I'm, I'm Maui because I'm the flawed sidekick. <laughs> I'm the one who, I taught her to sail, but then she's the one who taught me how to like connect at a much deeper level. Really, I'm just the, I started as a health educator. Amelia was, imagine seeing your identical twin sister crying in a hospitalized gown with undiagnosed abdominal pain. That means she can't sleep and they have to dose her with morphine, right? Identical twin. And I'm a health educator. I can help you with this. I hand her books after books and like, we're gonna fix this and it's gonna be fine, right? So I'm the mentor. And then we're in the process of writing the book. <laughs> I got burnt out writing the book and about called burnout. And the thing is, when you're super burnt out, you can't tell that you are. Uh, John Gottman has this language of enduring vulnerabilities. You have this sort of thing you return to whenever you're stressed and exhausted. My enduring vulnerability is, I just need more help. Why aren't you helping me? And so I'm like real burnt out and I'm yelling sort of at Amelia, like, you need to work harder on chapter six. I need more help. Why do I have to do? Oh, sorry about that noise. That's really, <laughs> and Amelia was like, okay, you're being mean right now and you're burnt out and exhausted. No, I'm fine. <laughs> She's like, I am taking your dog with me and you are leaving now to go stare at the ocean and get a massage. This is not a negotiation. I'm like, I'm fine, fine. 
screw you, I'm gonna go and it'll be, and I like look at the ocean, I drive to Rhode Island and I'm like, as soon as I see the waves, you were totally right, I was past that point. So one of the most powerful tools that we can have, amazingly, and to access our own internal sense of well-being is to have someone we trust that deeply to be able to see where we are better than we can see where we are, to take their advice seriously, because they can show us better than we can see ourselves how much we are in need of energy. The connection is, ultimately, the book is about connection. Yeah. And if, I mean, you said it, like you can't do a big project without community, right? right? And I guess for those of us who, who haven't been gifted with identical twin sisters, <laughs> How do you, where do you find it? Uh, I can tell you for sure that it doesn't have to be an identical twin sister because Amelia and I didn't have it for a really long time. Mm. We grew up in an alcoholic family, our dad's a total asshole, and the rule in an alcoholic family is you keep the secrets. You don't talk about it, not even to each other. Amelia and I shared a bedroom for the first 12 years of our lives, and we never, ever talked about our feelings about that family. We got through master's degrees. I got a master's degree in counseling psychology, and Amelia got a master's degree in choral conducting, and eventually we both looked at that and were like, okay, so we both got master's degrees in how to listen and feel feelings. I wonder if that says something about our family of origin. <laughs> so even when you have an identical twin sister, you don't necessarily have that connection. It took us writing this book to break down the walls and connect in a way that really is sisterhood. So the way you access it is not to be born with someone, but to build something with someone. Love is not something that just happens spontaneously, the same way meaning in life is not just something that comes from on high. You make it by engaging in a loving way with another person who values and trusts you. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So you brought up the Bikini industrial, industrial complex. complex. That's my sister's language. <laughs> so again, she's a music teacher. She's a choral conductor. And she needs her students to breathe deeply. If you can't breathe all the way down into your abdomen, you can't sing. And her college students are all totally convinced that abdomens are supposed to be flat. And so they stand like this with their abdomens flat. And how well can you breathe down into your abdomen when you're standing with your abdomen flat? Like, not very, right? And she goes on a rampage talking to her students about how the bikini industrial complex has lied to you about how your abdomen's supposed to be flat. Abdomens are round and dynamic. So imagine you're wearing a belt of noses around the biggest part of your belly, and you're going to inhale. That is how bellies are designed to work. And... Yes, I know that you have been instructed to hate every part of your body and that your abdomen is supposed to be a particular shape and size, but let's try on the possibility that any rule that gets in the way of you breathing is a bad rule. It's true. <laughs> so, since we only have one minute and seven oh seconds left... How did that happen? I know. I could really watch you for another <laughs> two hours. I could talk about sleep for two hours. I'll stare at you lovingly for the rest of the afternoon. So the, complete the stress cycle, mm -hmm. plan for the stressors, mm -hmm. learn to love ourselves, which just sounds really trite. Yeah. Yeah, you can say it better. Learn to accept the mess. 
It is almost impossible to love yourself all the time, to come to a place of like peace and rest that just lasts forever. Wellness is not a state of mind. It is not coming to a place of loving yourself. Wellness is a state of action. It is the freedom to move through the natural cycles of the stress response, to move into connection and then back out into autonomy and then back into connection and back out into autonomy, to move from effort and labor into rest and back to effort and back to rest. Wellness is not a destination that you will arrive at. It is a an action that you will move through, and your wellness is measured not by your state at any singular moment, but by the freedom your body has to move through all of those cycles. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Emily Nagoski. I loved hearing her talk about the bikini complex and its effect on how we all feel about our bodies. To learn more about Emily's work, head to emilynagoski.com you can also see the Q&A we did with Emily and her sister at goop.com slash the goop podcast. And don't forget to pick up a copy of Burnout. It should be required reading for everyone. That's it for today. You know the drill. Please let us know what you think. You can rate and review the podcast or hit us up on social. Tap subscribe to keep up with new episodes. Share with a friend. And we'll be back on Thursday with a very cool guest. Thank you for listening. <laughs>